0: Hi, I'm Paul Greenberg, author of the New York Times bestseller, Four Fish and American Catch. And I'm Nick Mink, co-founder of the direct-to-consumer seafood company, Sick Salmon Shares.
1: And what do we have in common, Paul? We like fish. That's right. And Paul and I have partnered to bring you an eight-episode series called Fish Talk. Each episode, Paul and I will trade off as hosts to take you on a journey from our coast to our kitchens so that we can better understand how
0: fish get to our plates. So, Paul, what should listeners expect from upcoming episodes? Well, Nick, let's face it. For non-fishy people, fish are confusing. They're confusing to cook. They're confusing to clean. What's wild, what's farmed, all these different choices you have to make if you're going to eat fish in a responsible way. So on this podcast, we're gonna talk to conservationists, scientists, chefs. At the end of each episode of Fish Talk, you will be a little less confused about fish.
1: I couldn't agree more, Paul.
0: All right, let's dive in.
1: Before the mid-90s, the whole basis of fishery management was always, how much can we take? They say, "What well, we've got to
0: save the oceans, so we'll have to privatize.
2: There's a select few people at the top that are
3: making all the money, and they're making the rules that benefit themselves. If the plan is to have
1: 10 big boats on the West Coast that catch 95% of the seafood, that seems extreme, but it's not out of the question. Nick here from Fish Talk. We just listened to a clip from a documentary that Paul and I worked on called Last Man Fishing. The documentary features the stories of dozens of different fishermen and scientists and chefs, all of whom are actively seeking to change the way that Americans eat seafood. And as documentaries like Last Man Fishing point out, our current industrialized seafood system is dominated by commodity harvested fish that unfortunately travel halfway around the globe before they get to our plates. These commodity fish provide little for the consumers who eventually eat them, and even less for the fishermen that harvest them. But there's plenty of people out there who believe that we don't have to settle for such a system. In this episode of Fish Talk, Paul and I interview a few of these change makers as we try to get to the bottom of the problems associated with our industrial seafood system, as well as look towards solutions for the future. We begin this episode in the kitchen with a chef who's a passionate advocate for rebuilding our relationship with our lands and our seas through more ecologically conscious, earth-centered cuisine. In that, she's a changemaker herself.
4: My name is Isabel Jackson-Nunes. I am the executive chef at Canyon Ranch Wellness Retreat in Woodside. We are a boutique hotel focused on the wellness Aspect of living life and where I come into play is really focusing on food systems and encouraging locally supported agriculture and fisheries. So, my intention is to create a taste of place experience using locally sourced food and encouraging our guests to take those practices beyond their stay at the ranch.
1: A lot of people make the connection with agriculture and ranches and their local food system. But fish seems kind of new. Do you want to speak to that at all?
4: Yeah, well, I think that being aware of the impact that we have on our environment is more close to the surface or close to the shore, if you will, than ever before. It's right in our face now. This climate crisis is really real. And over the last couple of years have really learned about the damaging effects of our large scale commodity, unsustainable ways of feeding ourselves it's one of those things that it's not a trend anymore it's essential and i think that we saw that throughout the pandemic as well where we we really magnified essential businesses and people were more conscious about being connected to their food source in a way that they had never even considered when i think of wellness i think of sustainability and i think of the full circle so i think of how we connect with the people that grow, raise and harvest our food. I feel like the best word that I have is, is that sense of connection.
1: So speaking of connection, we have this amazing piece of halibut from Real Good Fish, a wonderful community supported fishery, not too far from you along the California coast. Why'd you choose
4: halibut? Uh, I chose halibut for a couple of different reasons. It has a mild flavor, which means that it'll take on some of these other flavors that we're introducing really nicely. It has a firmer flesh, and so it will work well with acidic things such as ceviche. I love Peruvian cuisine. We had the Japanese come to Peru, and that mix of cultures created a very interesting cuisine authentic to Peru, where you see tons of Japanese and Latin crossover. It is one of the places where fusion really works well. So that's something that I thought would be interesting and different.
1: This is actually the last episode of the first season of Fish Talk. And this is our first real stab at a raw preparation. Talk us through the ingredients in this recipe.
4: For this recipe, really the base of it is these aji amarillo peppers. And if you're lucky, during the right time of year at the right farmer's market, you can find these fresh, but otherwise we use jarred, which is totally fine. So these are nice, bright yellow aji amarillos. Uh, I just opened those up, seeded them, discarded the seeds, and now we just have the soft flush here.
1: Great. So... Now, the really interesting thing is Paul and I have been texting this morning and we're like, ahi amarillo peppers, what do we do? It's always fun to be introduced to new ingredients. I think my food IQ is pretty good. I don't know about you, Paul, but I'd never heard of ahi amarillo peppers. If
0: you were, say, two guys like us on a podcast. And theoretically, if these two guys were supposed to cook a dish from a well-known chef who theoretically told us that we were supposed to have... Ah, uh, yeah, Mario. And we looked in several different supermarkets and then theoretically, of course, didn't find them. What would we do? That's
4: really funny. Great question. I always recommend trying Latin markets. If you cannot find these peppers, it's definitely not the end of the world. They taste a lot like yellow bell peppers, but they're a bit stronger and they have a touch of heat. So, in lieu of not having these specific peppers, I would say, use equal parts yellow bell peppers we can try that and then maybe add a serrano chili or something of that nature
0: and is this pepper is it a little bit on the sweet side or is it more sort of on the savory side of things
4: it's more on the savory side the ones i use today are jarred and Uh because they've been jarred they do have a certain salinity
0: to Mm. them okay. Mm -hmm. okay gotcha
1: So, Paul, do you just want to tell her that
0: we were the two guys uh, who hosted a podcast? Not just theoretically. Practically, we messed up, and we don't have those. So what did you use, Nick? I researched
1: them, and I'd used uh, sweet orange pepper. I've already made the paste, the sauce, but what I didn't get, obviously, is that heat.
0: Yep, and I'm sort of embarrassed what I did. The only jarred pepper I could find was pimentos, and so I used those. And I thought it tasted a little bitter. So I actually put a little sweetness in there. So I'm sorry.
4: <laughs> That's okay. Recipes are just a guide, right? It's kind of funny when people are really attached to a recipe because so many things can throw it off. Depending on where you live and where that product is and its peak of seasonality is going to change everything. I always encourage people to get creative.
1: So Isabel, walk us through the creation of this paste.
4: Yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of pre-steps that we take for this particular recipe, fermenting our garlic, which you can or you can choose not to do. You can use raw garlic. I like this for the flavor. It's just a little bit more acidic. It doesn't stick on your palate as long as raw garlic. So we take the peppers, the garlic, and our ginger. And we put that in a saute pan with a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Take the bite and the heat off of the garlic and the ginger. Get our peppers a little bit warm. They don't need much time to cook unless you're working from raw, but today we're not. And then you'll take that mixture and you'll throw it in a Vitamix.
1: Also with clam juice, right? Yes, with clam juice. I had never cooked with clam juice outside of a couple times doing chowders with it, but I'd never used it in a ceviche. And I really love the depth and the salinity that that brought to the
4: recipe. Yeah, and it's fun because the cut of fish that we're working today doesn't have a very strong fishy flavor at all. So introducing just a little bit more of that rich seafood flavor is a nice touch for this dish. We're gonna squeeze some fresh citrus. I'm using equal parts lemon to lime. We'll throw it in the Vitamix and go ahead and make our paste. Okay.
5: And I give it a whirl.
0: As the speed got faster and faster on that, I was tempted to do like a Scotty from Star Trek and say, Hey <laughs> Captain, I don't know if we can push her that much farther.
4: <laughs> that is so funny.
1: So that's a Vitamix. I could tell what a motor that blender has. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of texture are we looking for in this?
4: You want the texture to be smooth and not chunky, and it's going to be pretty loose. The marinade, in this recipe, we're going to call it the tiradito. It's not technically ceviche. It's not technically crudo. It's not technically marinated. It's tiradito. Tiradito? Yes. And right now, because it came off the stove, it's quite warm. Mm -hmm. We're actually going to put this into a flatter container and chill it, which will also help it tighten up just a touch.
1: Should we get moving to this beautiful piece of halibut that we have?
0: One thing I'm always a little worried about as a home cook is when is it cool for me to do raw fish? What precautions do we have to take before we even get started?
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, temperature control is going to be front of mind when we defrost fish here We do it under refrigeration, so it takes a good 24 hours for that piece of fish to defrost. But then beyond that, when you're working with it, you just wanna keep it really cold.
1: And would you recommend always using frozen fish?
4: No, not necessarily. It's just about choosing good fish and whichever form you have access to that is gonna be the right form for you.
1: We'll return to Chef Nunez at the end of our episode to finish learning about how to prepare her halibut ceviche. But first, back to her question about choosing good fish. What does it mean to choose good fish? Fish that's harvested sustainably from our oceans and responsibly for the harvesters who risk their lives every day to make sure that we have fish to eat. We caught up with someone exceptionally well-versed in the modern industrial seafood system to tell us more. Welcome, Niaz Dory to Fish Talk.
2: Good to be with you, Nick. I am honored to serve two organizations, the North American Marine Alliance and the National Family Farm Coalition. We entered into a shared leadership model three years ago. We felt that the seafood system has been absent from the food system conversations for way too long. The reason I started to do work on fisheries and seafood is because I immediately saw the struggles that I'd heard about from the farm workers back in my home state of California in the seafood system. And so once I saw it through that lens, I couldn't unsee it. And everything that I've done in my advocacy work around seafood systems for the last 28 years has been because I was inspired by the work of family farmers and farm workers and felt like, uh, why is it that the only thing we eat that has the word food in it isn't part of these conversations about food? So that's what I do. I'm based here in Gloucester, Massachusetts and work with fishermen and women and people who provide us with food from land and sea.
1: I like your term, you discovered fishermen and women and you couldn't unsee it because the reason I got into this was the same thing, working in food and agriculture and never thinking about how the men and women who produce our seafood were part of it. To give us a little bit of context, how would you describe the state of modern industrial seafood Mm. in as nice a way as you can?
2: (laughs) I know, I was going to say, are you going to bleep me out? We can't look at the modern industrial seafood system without looking back a few centuries, because the seeds for what is being experienced today was really planted at the point of colonialism in North America, when we had these multi-masted sailboats, schooners arriving across the ocean and before that point the ability to fish was limited by the strength of our arms, by the cycles of the ocean, by the migration of the animals who live in the ocean, by the weather and the size of the dories at that time. Suddenly schooners came and instead of being limited by nature, and our own abilities, we now could put these stories on the back of schooners, stack them up, and for the first time, go where the fish are. And that changed everything and created what we now know as demanding the same species 12 months out of the year, which is not that different than saying, I want strawberries 12 months out of the year. And we know the consequences of demanding strawberries 12 months out of the year, Half of the time, it's not worth eating because we're demanding them out of the seasons where they naturally grow sweet and red. And so you kind of go from there. You fast forward from the colonialization times to the next major demarcation point was World War II. We had these frigates that were being retired and one by one, they turned into factory whaling boats and factory fishing ships. We somehow think of overfishing and the problems with the ocean's ecosystem as something that happened in 1976 when we passed the Magnuson-Stevens Fishery Conservation and Management Act, there's danger there because it suggests a recent problem when the problem is rooted in something much older than that and much more deep-seated than that. And if we don't look that far back, then we're bound to make the same mistakes over and over again and come up with false solutions that only deal with little specks of time as opposed to change things for the long haul and somehow rationalize this industrial system as progress, sold it as this is what we must do to feed the masses when the world has been able to feed itself for millennia until we started to take land away and fishing rights away and access to basic infrastructure and resources away from people. So now they're dependent on the industrial system, which on land demands a monoculture, fence row to fence row approach to agriculture. And at sea, it demands an industrialized single species extraction of marine animals or industrial aquaculture. That is today's industrial seafood system.
1: Yeah, so Nias, what should we be doing to feed ourselves fish, right? We know there's this industrial system out there. We know it, its negative effects are profound on the environment, to workers, to consumers, but what's the solution?
2: What we should do to feed ourselves seafood, because it's not only fish, we're also talking about kelp, also talking about shellfish, First and foremost, for those who have started to pay attention to where their land food comes from and have developed a set of values around where they get their pigs and chickens and lettuce and tomatoes or strawberries from, is applying those same values and principles to what we eat from the ocean. That means eating what actually looks like what it used to be when it swam or when it actually lived in the ocean. None of this unidentified seafood objects that come off the factory floor, eat diversity of seafood items. Here in New England, over 60 different species are brought to shore, and the average chef or even household probably knows the top 10. It's not magic that those top 10 appear in the market, Fishermen go fishing and a lot of other things are caught. So what do we do? Do we honor whatever we catch or do we pretend that nothing else was caught? We know things swim together. We know there is an ecosystem out there. Cod really only swim in these waters a few times out of the year if we wait for it to come instead of going down and hunting them down in waters where we don't belong. So there's a seasonality to marine animals' lives and to species in the ocean that we should honor And finally, one of the biggest things is eating seafood that was caught closest to where we live. And that's relative. But if we start becoming more conscious of the seafood, where was it caught and how far has it traveled to get to my plate? And it's not only about where it was caught, it was also the footprint that it carries with it. If we're catching a species here in New England and it's being transported thousands of miles away to be processed and brought back here a couple of weeks later. It's no longer local seafood. It is now a part of the globalized seafood system. Think a little bit beyond what the market gives you. Think about what the ocean gives you.
1: Now that we've heard this remarkable overview of our seafood system from Niaz, let's dive into a discussion of what it's like to make change in our seafood system with a few of our guests.
3: My name is Alan Lovewell, and I am the CEO of Real Good Fish, also a founder. Started the company back in 2012. And the whole concept was inspired by a couple groups of fishermen back in New England, where I'm originally from, who started doing direct-to-consumer seafood via the innovative seafood distribution model called the Community Supported Fishery. And having learned about what was being done over there, and I was in graduate school at the time and decided to do something just like it here based in the Monterey Bay.
1: Yeah. So sick of salmon shares, we've been following real good fish for a while. We actually have pretty similar trajectories. We started in 2011 and you guys in 2012, and we've kind of been growing in a similar fashion as well. Why did you get into this seafood business? What made you take the jump into like, I want to be a fishmonger for the rest of my life?
3: (laughs) Like a lot of things in life, we don't realize it, but it's a culmination of past experiences and current needs and interpretations of the world and responses to the world. I think a lot of people, when they think about business, they think about business opportunity, they think about getting rich, and they think about making a bunch of money. But I think on the other side of business, as you're aware of, and other groups of businesses like ours are really more impact-driven and socially and environmentally driven in terms of understanding that there are problems in the world that need solutions and that businesses actually are a great way to address those issues. So for me, when we look at sort of the culmination of my life towards making this decision about starting a seafood business of all things, one was I grew up on an island called Martha's Vineyard My father was a journalist, and his beat was the waterfront. And so as a child, I was tagging along on the docks and on boats, listening to the stories that he was sharing and writing about via the Vineyard Gazette. As a kid, I could obviously have cared less. I was more interested in the the fish that were flopping around on the docks, roaming around, checking out the engine rooms. That was what I was interested in as a kid. But looking back, my father was sharing stories of these fishermen, usually actually not in positive light, in the sense that These are fishermen that were struggling to make a living. These are fishermen that were undergoing dramatic changes from a management perspective, from an economics perspective, from a stock perspective. Our fishing community was changing before our eyes in my time growing up on the vineyard, and it had been changing for decades prior. But putting that piece of experience together, having spent some time working down in Baja, Mexico, teaching for a group called the National Outdoor Leadership School, and meeting a whole lot of local small scale fishermen who are living off of the waters of the Sea of Cortez and they themselves having difficult times providing for their families and their communities and learning the impacts of the global fishing industry. That was all a calling to go to graduate school. When I was at graduate school, seeking to learn more about the implications of seafood policy and management of an international resource or body of water rather, It gave me the opportunity to meet these fishermen who were taking things into their own hands. They were setting out to say, you know what, I'm not going to be part of the commodities system anymore. I'm not going to be beholden to the global market price of any particular species. I'm going to go about creating my own supply chains. And for me, that was really empowering way to look at the solutions necessary for creating change and understanding that There had to be a whole new process for deriving value to the consumer, to the fishermen, really sort of rethink the ways in which seafood was traveling around the world.
1: So this resulted in real good fish being born in 2012. So tell us a little bit about this community-supported fishery and the impact you're making on the oceans and on the lives of fishermen.
3: Yeah, absolutely. We started in 2012 and we got a loan from my old boss. I used to manage bike shops back in the day. And the terms were pay him back or work it off. Hmm. And so I got this loan for him, $22,000. Not a whole lot of money to start a business, but it was enough for us to get a van and a whole lot of coolers and for me to build up a website and start to take orders and start to get things going. And in the beginning of the business, we were doing it all. We were at the docks and we were cutting, we were marketing, we we're doing customer service. We were doing everything and delivering via the cooler model. And it was a really exciting time. It was really grassroots, positive. We we're getting a lot of buzz and providing, as I saw it, a huge solution, not just for myself, because part of this business that I didn't mention was that having grown up on the island, having either caught the seafood myself as a recreational angler, or getting the seafood from my friend's father, who was a commercial fisherman. That was my seafood supply chain, right? I wasn't buying seafood from the grocery store. I was getting it from myself or from a friend's father who commercially fished. And then being able to create a business that allowed me, selfishly, to enjoy seafood direct from the dock, but also to know that I could share those relationships and that network throughout as a business model. This is immense joy. And knowing that anywhere you went, any restaurant or any grocery store, I was never satisfied with what I was seeing. And to be able to provide the fisherman info, the vessel info, the gear type, the date of landing, all that stuff, right? All that transparency, and not just for trust sake, but more just from a personal connection standpoint, from an experience standpoint, from an enjoyment standpoint. It just felt so much better having that information. So we started with like 150 members at that point and just continued to grow from there recognizing that there's more and more people who wanted access to that level of quality and trust and transparency and and connection and story that we had to provide for the seafood.
1: And you guys started in the Bay area and with Bay area fishermen, and now you've built a national company with national fishermen. And this is something that I struggled with all the time at Sitka, but why do the national thing? What, compelled you to say we're gonna take this local model and go about nationalizing it, not only with the fishermen that you're sourcing from, but for consumers. What was the impetus of that?
3: Yeah. So actually surprisingly enough, I always wanted to go national. I just wasn't sure how I was gonna do it. But again, like going to school for international environmental policy, my dreams were very big, mm-hmm. and very global in context.
1: Mm-hmm. And you had twenty two thousand dollars to get those big dreams done.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Totally. I had to right size the business at the time to do what I thought could be done with what I had and the resources that I had. So I think the real question was why now? Why did I, a year ago, decide to make the company national? And it was because the issues that were facing our communities and our fishermen at any level, in any community throughout the country, were not unique. We all are somehow experiencing the same types of challenges in terms of market access, in terms of challenges with commodity supply chains, and getting just fundamentally access to not just traceable seafood, but let's even just go a step back from that, just domestic seafood. The statistics are 60 to 90%, depending on the study you look at, of seafood that's consumed in this country is imported. And of the seafood that we're catching in this country, the large majority of it's being exported. So there's this weird, perverse bait-and-switch where we're doing all the most amazing management and stewardship of our resources here in this country. And we're shipping it off for other people to enjoy while we're importing the worst of the worst when it comes to environmental impacts, human rights impacts, you name it. And so the giant conundrum is why do we as taxpayers in this country, when we go out to a restaurant, when we go to the grocery store to buy seafood, why are we paying for the utmost, most sustainable seafood while sitting at our tables and enjoying the exact opposite. And so back to the why now question, it really came down to, one, understanding this problem was continuing to be pervasive. And the solution would have to require businesses or groups of businesses working together to solve this issue
1: So when you think of the seafood system and you think of your average consumer, what's that one thing that you think every consumer should know about their seafood supply?
3: That you're going to make one decision about what you're eating in terms of seafood. Domestic seafood is by far one of the best decisions you should be looking for. Now, is American seafood management perfect? It's not, but it is arguably the cornerstone of sustainability as far as the globe is concerned it's what other countries strive to achieve when it comes to management and literally mandating sustainability of its resources yeah
1: i want to rewind here a little bit can you talk a little bit about the challenges you faced taking a really amazing local concept and bringing it to fishers across the United States, coastal communities across the United States and consumers across the United States. Because oftentimes we think of food system reform or sustainability or what makes good food good is often rooted in this concept of localism. And you guys are trying to bend that a little bit. And we could say the same with Sitka too. But how has that been received? What are the challenges you've faced in having your model evolve in this way?
3: Yeah. So I think some key concepts that we embrace here at Real Good Fish is the understanding that to really have and create a systemic change, you have to be operating at a lot of different layers. Systems are very complex in depending on the issue and depending on how far away you are from the issue, how close you are to the issue, everything changes. And I think that's just indicative of things working in very large scales. And food is one of the best examples of that. And the conversation about local is even more indicative of the layers associated with these systems. And so I just was speaking about the call to action from a national perspective, right? That we as taxpayers and citizens of this country should be acting at a national level. But at the same time, when we talk about local food systems, we can say the same thing. We can say, look, we as a citizen of Moss Landing or of Sitka, Alaska, that you should be acting in that regard as well, that your involvement as a citizen should have you voting at the town level and should have you participating in the local economy. But I think it's important for us to recognize that we can be good humans, and we can do the right thing at different levels of system. And that is to say that, okay, local is important. So how do we get people more local food? And if you can't get access to that local food, you can't get access to Moss Landing seafood because you don't live in Moss Landing doesn't mean that you should be excluded from it. It doesn't mean that someone in Nebraska or someone in Arizona shouldn't be able to get access to that food. Now, yes, we should be making sure that people here in this community, within the Bay Area, within California, are getting access to this amazing local food. But it doesn't also mean that we can't provide that food to other people who wouldn't have access to it otherwise. And in fact, by looking at our strategy for national expansion, that's what we're doing as well. We're working with partners rooted in those communities to provide that access. And so it's a very different way of going about the seafood business model and seafood production model, which as you know, and as you do a quick search online or scroll through your Instagram feed, you will see that most seafood businesses are out there to provide you with a commodity. They're really out there to solve your salmon problems or your tuna problems or your shrimp problems or your cod problems. They're there to sell you on those species. They don't care where that stuff is coming from. They don't care to tell you the origin of those things and what communities they came from and even what fishermen that came from. They just want to help you solve that commodity problem. But companies like Sitka, companies like Real Good Fish are not there to solve the commodity problem. We're here to solve that connection problem. We're here to solve the problem of where do you get responsibly sourced product, doesn't matter what it is, from communities who are responsible for producing it and ensuring that you feel like you're a part of that community. You feel like you're to participating in the local economics of that community. And in our case, being a great American citizen who's supporting domestic fisheries. And yes, if you are in North Carolina, should you be eating a whole lot of moss landing seafood? Probably not. You should probably eating more seafood from North Carolina. But should that keep you from experiencing King salmon when it's running here on the West coast? No, you should be able to get some access to that. But again, fundamentally, just thinking about these are systemic issues that require multiple levels of thinking and multiple levels of solutions to get us to a point where we understand that yes, local is part of the solution. Yes, domestic is part of the solution. But more than anything, Being an active participant, a conscious consumer, being someone who cares about these things is understands the value sets that we're operating under and really understanding that what we are doing is fundamentally different and better than the way things have been done
0: historically.
1: Before I introduce our next guest, here's a quick word from our sponsors.
0: Experience the real-life struggles of small-scale fishermen in the new documentary, Last Man Fishing. Narrated by best-selling author Mark Bittman, the film explores the growing tensions between corporate interests and small-scale fishermen. Watch it now on iTunes, Apple TV, or YouTube. Learn more at lastmanfishing.com.
1: Dr. Talia Young is another one of those folks looking to change the way we eat fish. She joins us on Fish Talk to tell us all about what makes her work so pathbreaking. So Talia, can you tell us a little bit about why you founded and what's going on in Fishadelphia these days?
5: Yeah, I would love to. Sometimes people are like, how did you get into fish? And One of the things that I find interesting about fish is that they're a place where you can talk about environmental and economic and human sustainability at the same time. Hmm. And I think actually, with all environmental issues, you can do that. But with fish, those human issues are very pertinent, and they're clear to everyone. Because fish provide food for people and the harvesting of fish provides livelihoods for people. And if there are no f- more fish, then there's no more food and also no more jobs, right? So like all of yeah. those things are really obviously linked in ways. And I feel like sometimes when we talk about other environmental issues, their links to humanity are more distant. But it this part of the Country, at least, much of the work with fishing communities involved living in rural places, working largely with working class men, and especially often, but not always, white men. And I have and have made and continue to make really important relationships. But I would say, sort of, in short, I'm probably not the best suited person to do that particular line of work, as I'm the child of Chinese immigrants. I identify as queer. Like, there were just sort of all these things that made it seem like. That should be work that should be done, maybe by other people. But it turned out that seafood is really important in communities that I was doing other work in. I was at the local seafood conference, and somebody got up and said, Americans only know how to eat cod and salmon fillets, and we need to teach them how to eat other kinds of fish. And I was like, I don't think you're talking to the right Americans. Mm. In which I think that there are many Americans who eat many kinds of seafood in many forms. I mean, whatever. Everybody likes cod and salmon. No one's going to say no to cod and salmon. But there's a lot of Americans who eat a lot of other kinds of fish and seafood and shellfish in many different forms, whole. Many of those people are people of color, immigrants. And I was learning about all these small-scale fishing communities who are trying to build domestic markets in the face of this huge trade imbalance, right? We're exporting a ton of seafood, we're importing a ton of seafood, and these small-scale fishing communities want to find domestic markets to make their livings viable. And I was also thinking about these communities that I either was embedded in or connected to or knew about that eat a ton of seafood. And could it be possible that if we connected these two communities that are told in many cases that they don't have very much in common, but I might argue have a lot more in common than we might think, could this be win-win for everyone? And I think even more, could this have the potential to build Relationships between these two places to increase people's knowledge and awareness and interest between these places. There's a huge gap in this country, and that it is represented in some ways across this divide. We are 60 miles from the shore, but there's a big cultural divide here. So then <laughs> I was like, what if we just piloted a thing? What would happen? And I talked with a bunch of folks who had run CSFs, and I was like, I don't know if this would work, but it would be interesting. And so I wrote a couple of proposals. And then the other thing is I used to be a school teacher. And because I did used to work with high school students, I think it's really fun to work with young people on real world projects. So Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what we should do? We should start a seafood business. And then we should get a group of high schoolers to run it. (laughs) And then I called up a former student of mine, who's now like in her 30s with two kids, you know, like she's a grown up now. And I was like, so I don't know what you're doing now, but do you want to maybe help me start this kind of weird program idea that I thought of and have a little bit of funding for? And she was like, sure. So I still had connections at the school that I had worked with. And so I said, I want to run another after-school program here. This one's a little bit different. We're going to start a fish business. And they were like, okay. So we recruited in all the classrooms and did a little pitch and students came. And then we ran a series of focus groups where... We asked the students basically to invite their families in and we showed them pictures of various fish available on the Jersey Shore, asked them if they would be interested in buying them, asked them how much they would be interested in paying, fed people some food, paid them a little money, and then collected all those data. The following semester, we built a website and designed some flyers and spread the word. And then that following spring, we started buying fish.
1: And this was in 2018, right? Yeah, 2018. 2018, yeah. yeah.
5: Mm-hmm. And so I talked to this. Third generation Bayman. He's a clammer and he's the founding member of a shellfish cooperative. And he agreed that he could buy our fish and drive it into the city. And so we started. And at the beginning, it was like a CSA. People could subscribe for the whole season through the web. And then they would come and pick up at the school. And the students would come on their study hall and weigh the fish and package it.
1: Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is like the coolest story.
5: because that so that people would come into the school and pick it up in the conference room and there were just all these really interesting things we had this Burmese student this incredibly innovative Burmese student who was deeply embedded in the Burmese Christian community in South Philadelphia she would take orders and take 6 pounds of fish home and just sell them to her church members. And then we had another student who was Chinese and her mom, they had this gaggle of Chinese moms. So we started selling to those Chinese moms and the student built us a WeChat group. And so that student, she's now a junior in college. She's still working for us. She still runs our WeChat group. We still sell to her mom and all her friends and everybody else in that WeChat group. But then there were all these interesting things, like we would have these conversations with the students about sometimes people would come and they wouldn't be English speaking, how we want to manage this in ways that make sense. And through having these conversations with the students, we developed the system of laminated cards. And everybody's name was magneted to the board and they would take their card off the board and give it to somebody so that there wasn't lots of drama about like, what's your name? How do you spell it? Are you on the list? So there were just interesting things that happened as a result of this. And so some of the customers were parents and friends of students, and some were foodies who found us on the internet. And we have a two-tiered price system. So regular rate is $22 a week, and you get a pound of fillets or a whole fish. You can subscribe either for a whole fish club or a fillet club. And then community rate, as we call it is $12 for that same amount of fish and basically covers the cost of the fish but doesn't cover the cost of our labor. And you're eligible for community rate if you are eligible for public assistance like food stamps or Medicaid, or if you send a student to one of our participating schools, or if you are referred to us by someone in one of those categories. So we ran the first season. I think there were like 25 customers. And then we kept going. So South Philly is a pretty interesting neighborhood. It's super racially mixed historically black and white with newer Southeast Asian, East Asian, and Central American and Mexican immigrant populations. And I really also wanted to be in North Philly, which is one of the many centers of black American, African American populations in Philadelphia. And so we started another after-school program at a second school in North Philly. And then we had done that for about a semester. And then there was a pandemic. (laughs) So we shut down for a couple of months, but then like everyone else, we're like, well, it seems like we should keep doing this, and we had already started a system where there were a few customers who would pick up a cooler and bring it to their house, and then people who live near them would pick up their shares from their neighbor's porch. So we had this system sort of started. So we moved exclusively to porch pickup systems, and then by the middle of the pandemic, suddenly we had doubled our customer base, and <laughs> so we were like, oh right, people are looking for new ways to get. Right now, people are thinking about this. And so we've been doing that for a year. We're now at this moment of, we're at the scaling tipping point. Like we need to figure out if and how we want to scale. Like right now we're buying more fish than will fit on Georgia's truck. And interestingly, and I'm super curious about how you handle this question, we have a total processing bottleneck, Mm -hmm. which is that I call people and I'm like, do you want to fillet 900 pounds of black sea bass? And they're like, heck no. So then I don't buy it.
1: Yep. it was right. one of the bottlenecks that we had. And yep. we ended up buying our own processor in 2015. And I sometimes joke that it was either the best decision or the worst decision we ever made because it basically put us on a, the trajectory that, well, we're going to have to do this for serious now. Yep. So a couple questions. What you're doing at Philadelphia is so cool. And what's it like to get high schoolers involved and work with these high schoolers? Because I think that is something that is totally unique about your model. What's their feeling around this? To hear what you're doing with a group of what I'm assuming like 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids is just remarkable.
5: I mean, it's awesome. Somebody asked once, like, what do the kids bring? And I was like, that's not quite the right frame. The kids make things possible that wouldn't be possible otherwise. The kids are connected to communities that we are not connected to, and for sure the docs and the fishermen are not connected to, yeah. right? They are in some ways our community ambassadors. We also have nine staff and we've worked really hard to be hiring from within the communities that we're interested in reaching, right? And so we've had a lot of conversations about how we are cultivating a group of community ambassadors who bring our program to people yeah. and the students are among that. And then I just did a post interview with some of the students last week and asked them, why did you join the program? What do you get out of it? What have you learned? And it's interesting mm-hmm. overwhelmingly, our students are joining the program because they are interested in learning about business, which is kind of funny because, as an academic, I don't know anything about running a business mm-hmm. <laughs> it turns out. so that's maybe what interests them. I mean, people come in different ways. Some people are interested in fish or fishing. some people are interested in cooking but I would say the majority of students who come are interested to some extent in learning about business. Hmm. But then another thing that was really interesting is that the students were like, yeah, but then it was a really great atmosphere. So we stayed. The students have developed really strong relationships with each other and with the adult staff who run the programming. And that's a large reason why they stay.
1: And with the members and the fishermen too?
5: That contact has been much more limited in the pandemic, but certainly when there was direct student customer contact, for sure. We also do these dock trips once a year where we would bring these school buses full of students and their moms and grandparents, basically, to the shore. The first time we did it, I was like, oh, right, it's possible that many of you have never been to the Atlantic. And then we got there and the dock people were like, whoa, (laughs) who are you and who are these people? Right. So I don't know. We're really interested in what does it mean to be building these connections with people? And I think it's hugely variable, right? Like some of the students, some of the harvesters, some of the customers are really interested in those relationships and the supply chain and where things come from and who's involved in that. And some people are just interested in fish and some people are just interested in budget. So people participate for a wide variety of different reasons. And I think one of the things that we found is that being able to offer multiple values is an important way of supporting and maintaining a diverse group of stakeholders and keeping people engaged.
1: That's a great segue to my next question, which I also think makes fishadelphia really interesting is one of the critiques of, I think, at least 10 years ago and five years ago all of local food was its whiteness or its homogeneity related to socioeconomic status. And what you guys are doing is so different, right? Because the reality is everybody eats fish and everybody from different classes eat fish. And your model kind of Turns that community supported fishery, the narrative of a local fish being socioeconomically homogeneous and white on its head. What are the opportunities and the challenges you've faced pursuing this really unique and wonderful model?
5: I think that actually, it's not even that everybody eats fish, but I would argue that the communities that we're working in eat more and different fish yeah. than sort of whatever we might call mainstream america a few years ago the dock manager at point pleasant called me and was like i got some eel bycatch do you want it and i was like absolutely we could move it like i knew that we could just move it and we did we sold 90 pounds of eel in like 10 minutes and people want different things and then the other other thing we keep trying to get so we keep trying to get whole welk or conk and the the well processor is like, you don't want them. They're going to smell really bad. And I'm like, I, no, no, we want them. Our customers want them. It's, and we're not afraid of how bad they're going to smell. And then they won't sell them whole to us. It's not even just like everybody does this. It's like people yeah. do it in different ways. And these are different markets. And I think it's sort of interesting because I think we have customers who eat a lot of different kinds of seafood and know exactly what they want. Our Chinese mom group in particular, we'll quote them a price for whatever it is that week, and they'll be like, eh, we can get it better at the Chinese supermarket. They know exactly what the prices are. So they're super discerning, and they know what to do with their seafood. And then we also have a group of people who are new to seafood, but want to try new things. But together, collectively, it means that we can sell basically anything (laughs) to people, because people are either really widely versed, or they're interested in trying something new.
1: From the East Coast to the West Coast, people like Niaz and Tolly and Alan and countless others are remaking our seafood system before our very eyes. But how does it taste? Let's head back to the kitchen with Paul and Chef Nunez to find out. Should we get moving to this beautiful piece of halibut that we have? Absolutely. Okay. I'm sharpening my knife. Oh, that's a nice fillet knife, Paul. How thick are the halibut fillets that you got? I have a piece of halibut that looks like it's about an inch and a half thick. Nice. Me too.
4: The piece that I'm working with is probably about almost an inch.
1: Okay. Beautiful. So your recommendation for cutting this halibut, you want to kind of slice this like you would sashimi?
4: Yep. Pretty thin, a little over a quarter inch. You always want to check to see if there are any bones. And then I usually like cut it right down the center. These slices will now be about the length of my finger. So you can pick it up with a fork. You can handle it. I usually hold my knife at at an angle. And when you're cutting fish, you want as little strokes as possible so that you don't eat up the meat. So you want to use your whole blade when you're slicing fish. You want to slice against the grain, just like you would any piece of meat towards the head.
1: Oh, that's nice. I don't know if I have the knife skills to be able to do that, but I'm going to (laughs) try.
0: When I've made sushi, I've read that sometimes the way you train yourself is to exhale on the knife cut so that it's like on one exhalation.
4: I like it. It's a very mindful approach. You know, when we talk about raw fish application with a very acidic marinade, you want the fish thick enough to handle it without losing its integrity. You don't want that acid to just start eating away at the flesh. So getting that size of cut right is important.
1: Paul, where are you in the slicing of your fish? I'm about done. I'm basically done. We have sliced our halibut. Now are we ready to plate, right?
4: We're pretty much ready to plate, yes.
0: I've been chilling my plate. Is that a good thing to do or a bad thing to do?
4: wonderful thing to do, absolutely. I'm going to start with just putting a couple of drops of tamari on my fish. I do that just to give the fish a little bit of introductory seasoning before you overwhelm it with the sauce. It's similar to the reason why you would salt a steak before you cook it. And when we add this marinade or the tiradito to our fish, there's so much acid in it that over the course of time, it's gonna start to cook it. The other part of it is simply layering flavor. So, just like you're building a sauce, just like you are building flavors of cooked food, before you introduce that to heat, you've taken a step to tenderize your product, right? Using something salty or by just putting a couple of drops of sesame oil on okay. this fish. That's just another introduction of fat, which is going to help texture, it's going to introduce more flavor. It's going to really help give it that Peruvian feel. We're still working with a Latin and a Japanese mix of flavors. So we're introducing some of those early on, and then we're going to go ahead and add our tirrito.
1: You go first.
4: For this, because it is a strong flavor, I'm going to add enough to lightly coat each piece of fish. But I still want to be able to see my fish. I've started to add a few of my little cherry tomatoes, which I just quartered. I added a couple of kernels of corn. I'm going to just really roughly sprinkle over some roasted bell peppers, which I just roasted over an open flame, peeled the skins, and diced them up. See, we're utilizing a lot of different techniques in this dish. I blanched my corn. Our shallots are raw. The fish is raw. The peppers are... Oops. So there's lots of different layers of flavor coming to this dish just in the preparation aspect.
1: Oh, I never thought of that. I'm, I'm really excited actually thinking about the, the smokiness of yeah. the red pepper and the raw preparation. There's some cilantro on the recipe, and I'm currently building my layers of flavor with smartly placed pieces of cilantro. Yeah, I'll do
0: that too.
4: So this is the type of dish where you'd want it to put it together relatively quickly so that it can be enjoyed and not be fully cooked, right? The difference between this dish and the ceviche is that the intent is really to cook the seafood in the acid. We don't want to totally cook the seafood here. We want to really appreciate its raw flavor.
1: So would that make it almost a little bit more like a crudo
4: then?
0: Yeah. I guess this is in a way kind of where Japan meets Latin America, right? Because the Japanese would keep it raw and the ceviche tradition would say, cook it. And so we're literally meeting it halfway.
4: Yes. Yeah. That's
0: cool. Just I like that. Why I
4: really thought this was an interesting approach because it's very, very multicultural. It's really different. There's a lot being represented here, not just from a culinary perspective, but from a cultural perspective. And that's really fun.
1: I just took my last little accoutrement, which is this thinly sliced shallot. Paul, yeah, where are I'll you at? On. I'll show you. Oh, wow. Oh, Paul's, yeah. Yeah, Paul has more of an expressionist painting vibe on his. <laughs> <laughs> so how would you recommend eating this?
4: Oh, my gosh. I mean, you could just grab a fork, chopsticks, whichever, whatever.
1: Oh, chopsticks, chopstick. Uh, that's an, an interesting idea. I'm eat to it's so beautiful. The white of the halibut. The dark red of the tomatoes, the green of the cilantro, the little purple hue from the shallots? Yes. Isabel, do you want to take the first sprite and describe it for us?
4: Yeah. Mine is super tasty. It really tastes like summer. The texture of the fish is absolutely perfect. I really appreciate the balance of sweetness between the tomatoes, the peppers, and then the ají amarillos. The... Sesame oil is actually something I'm probably appreciating the most out of this dish right now.
1: It's wonderful. And I would not be able to tell you that there was tamari, but it really acts to deepen the flavor of the fish and the acidity of the shallot and the earthiness of the cilantro is what really gets me and that combined with the really just pungency of this sauce is just incredible. And the halibut
0: is perfect. And the corn is nice too, the sweet, the sweet of the corn. It's a very chefy concept, but I really love the idea of layering. It kind of reminds me of like the way painters work to build up a, an initial layer and then add texture and imagery. So I think it's really nice. Absolutely. Isabel,
1: this is wonderful. I told Alan this, I've always admired what real good fish is doing for being able to provide marketplaces for fishermen who are trying to do a better job related to how they're harvesting the fish, particularly the handling of the fish. You can tell that this halibut has been just handled perfectly no, and it's true. getting it to consumers that are really going to uh, pay attention to that.
0: I think when you're working, especially when you're working with raw fish, it's really, really important that you handle them correctly. And frankly, like the large multinational commodity chain just doesn't offer you that degree of care that I think a small-scale producer, well-educated in in the methods, is able to do.
1: So, Isabel, how is this dish emblematic of what you want to see in the seafood system moving forward?
4: Oh, gosh. I mean, this type of dish really represents to me where I am right now in California. This represents taste of place, right? Connecting to your food source and sourcing locally is one of the most sustainable actions that we can take on a daily basis. And it is a direct link to the health of our bodies and our community and our planet. So we just encourage everyone to seek out their local food systems and start putting that into play as frequently as possible
1: a taste of place a more sustainable action a piece of fish that's better for the planet all of these ideas encapsulate the way that people are making change in the way that we eat fish and with that we conclude this episode and this season of fish talk we hope you enjoyed our exploration of the way that fish travel from our coast to our kitchen see everybody again soon
0: Hey everyone, Paul here with a fish tip. Hey, once you've taken the fillets off a whole fish, you might want to make some stock out of what's left over. To make the best fish stock, remove the fins and tail and then break the backbone in a few places. Bring those bones with water, a little white wine, a bay leaf, and some black peppercorns to a boil. Turn off the heat for five minutes and let it all rest, then boil and low for another 20 minutes. Cool and strain. That'll keep in the fridge for three days or in the freezer for three months.
4: How much do you know about the last fish you ate? Sitka Salmon Shares delivers responsibly sourced wild Alaska seafood to your doorstep. As a member, you'll receive a monthly share of delectable seafood, including favorites like halibut and coho salmon. And you'll be connected to the story behind your fish. Sitka Salmon Shares model ensures superior quality fish and traceability to the source, from the ocean to your plate. Meet your fishermen, Browse recipes and shop wild-caught Alaska seafood at SitkaSalmonShares.com. Guaranteed this wild fish will be the best you've ever cooked at home or your money back.